Open them up to the book of Acts. Now we're going to be continuing the book of Acts, chapter 1. We're looking at verses 12 through um, the end of the chapter. Um, we're going to just gonna continue on from where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we, uh, we started uh, a, what I told you is going to be a long journey, a long journey through this book of Acts that was written by um, a man named Luke. In fact, the same Luke that, that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke, being a doctor and a, a super, super intelligent man, um, just took um, a, a lot of time writing what he wrote, what we're going to study over these next uh, months, to this man named Theophilus. Again, this man that we don't know a whole lot about, and yet um, Luke spent not just weeks, but literally years um, documenting from the birth of Christ to the resurrection of Christ, from the ascension of Christ to 30 years after the church um, had begun. And so we're talking just, just literally over three decades of information that he um, just painstakingly um, put down in such detail for us that we're still benefiting from today, you know, 2,000 years later. Now, as we started out last week, we really focused a lot just on the last moments we see Jesus here on earth before he ascended to his heavenly throne. And a lot of what we talked about last week was this promise that he gave to his disciples that they were about to receive an incredible gift. Um, this gift that he um, described as the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus put it in verse 8, um, this gift that was about to empower them in an incredible way. Um, why would he empower them? The power was for them to be his witnesses. Specifically, verse 8 says, this power, when the Holy Spirit comes down to you, it's for the purpose of you being witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses of Christ. To go declare his gospel message, to go declare his life, death, and resurrection, to go declare his kingdom um, that had come and is coming um, someday. Now it's interesting that, uh, that verse 8, um, it, it's the power behind what we know is the Great Commission. If you remember the Great Commission where um, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says after that, and surely what, I'll be with you until the end of the age? That with you that he was talking about was the presence of the Holy Spirit synonymous with the Spirit of Christ that we see in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit in verse 8, as we're going to talk about even next week when they received it, that's the power behind the Great Commission. The Great Commission is nothing we can't do on our own. It's something we're empowered through the Spirit of God dwelling in us to be able to go forth and do. And in this final moment we kind of saw um, last week with these people, Jesus ascends to heaven um, with another promise that he's going to come back again someday um, in the same manner that he went. And again, he went upon, this says, in a cloud, which I happen to think was a glory cloud, you know, uh, the kind of glory of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. And there's going to be a day where Christ comes back in all of his glory. For who? If you know Christ, that's you. That's me. Coming back for us so we can reign with him forever and ever and ever. Anybody looking forward to that day? I certainly Hope so, and I certainly I can tell you that I am. Uh, why don't we go ahead and read our verses for today, then we're going to um, spend just a moment in prayer and ask God's blessing upon it. So um, starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1, reading through the end of the chapter, it says this. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying, and here are the names of those who were present. Peter. John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. 
They all met together and, went, and were content, or constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all of his intestines. That's quite a description, isn't it? The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldamah, I think that's how you pronounce that, um, which means field of blood. And Peter continued, this was written in the book of the Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. And it also says, let someone else take his position. And so in verse 21, he says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus from the time he was baptized by John, speaking of John the Baptist, until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone to where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this night. Um, we thank you, God, for this, for this place that we can meet in together as a church. God, I'm thankful for each one here and just the, the fellowship of the believers and just the, um, the, the word that we hold in our hands. God, your spoken word that we call our Bible that, that gives us instruction for life, instruction for godly living, as your word says. God, it encourages us, it strengthens us, it challenges us at times, it convicts us, Lord. God, you know our hearts, you, got, you know, God, what we need tonight, and I, I just pray that we would leave this place having learned something. I, I pray that we leave this place even more importantly, looking more like Jesus than when we walked in. So God, I pray that you would reign in our hearts, reign in our minds. I pray that you would take on this message tonight and speak it as you would. God, uh, oh Lord, I'm just, let my mouth be your mouth to your people. Uh, I pray, God, that you would speak. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, if you remember last week where we left off, like I said, Jesus just ascends into heaven, tells them that um, the last thing he says to them essentially is they're about to have the Holy Spirit come upon them, this promised spirit that the Father God promised them. And the first thing we see in verse 12 is these apostles returning to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So it was a distance of about a half a mile. If you have an older version of the Bible, it says a, a Sabbath day's journey, um, which was about a half a mile. Um, if you know cubits, it was about 2,000 cubits. But now, it, what's interesting about that is something I learned. It's like, well, just, I don't know, every once in a while information is kind of interesting. Um, where they kind of got this was, it was really tradition. Um, and so if you, if, you, if you remember the tabernacle of the Old Testament, 
you had the tabernacle in the middle um, when, they're all, when, the, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, wandering through the wilderness, if you will. And um, when, the, when, the, when the tribes were dispersed, there were some dispersed in front of the tabernacle, some to the right, some to the left, some behind. And that 2,000 cubits was the furthest distance from the furthest tribe to be able to get to the tabernacle on the day of worship. And so that's kind of where they traditionally said that you can't travel any farther than this on a Sabbath day because that's how far it was from the furthest tribe to the center of the tabernacle, which again, you know, doesn't affect us a whole lot, but it's still kind of interesting when you see stuff like that in Scripture, kind of knowing what it, what it means. But in verse 13, it says, when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying, and more than likely, I mean, obviously we can't prove this, but more than likely, this was the same exact upper room where they had met with Jesus that final time, where they had taken um, the Lord's Supper with him, um, that, that last communion, if you will, where Jesus sat with his disciples. And we see there in verses 13 and 14 that those present were um, the eleven because as we know, Judas at this time was no longer with them. Judas Iscariot, that is. And, and so we see the 11 disciples. We see Mary, Jesus' mother, several other women, um, more than likely um, those women that followed Jesus in his ministry, those like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as she's called, and some of these other women that are named kind of throughout the Gospels. They were with the disciples there. But it also says with them were the brothers of Jesus. Who knew that Jesus had brothers? Not like just Christian brothers, but literal brothers and sisters. He did. But now they were obviously half brothers and sisters because Jesus, as we know, had a different father being God. And yet in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, um, they're named, at least four of them are named that we know of, which were James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Um, a couple of them we should really know well because his brother James is the one who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, and his brother named Judas is also called Jude, which is the second to last book in the New Testament. So two of Jesus' brothers um, that were kind of mentioned there end up writing two of these New Testament books. But it's of note that before this um, time, uh, before the resurrection of Christ, we, we can see in John 7 and verse 5 that his brothers didn't believe in him. Uh, his brothers didn't believe that he was the Son of God. I mean, you know, we don't know what, he, what they believed exactly, but I'm sure, as you would, a little brother trying to think that Big Brother is the Son of God would be um, something that would be a, a challenge to be able to, to believe, and yet the Bible says they clearly didn't, but after the resurrection, um, they came to see him for who he was, and I'm sure that had to have been a humbling moment that, uh, you know, big brother who was always, you know, goody two-shoes actually was the Messiah. <laughs> uh, that, that had to have been quite the moment um, of, of when they finally came to that realization. But there in verse 14, it says they were all meeting together. They were in prayer constantly united, it says, in prayer. Now, from the time Jesus ascended into heaven until Pentecost, which we're going to see next week, was a period of about 10 days. And then so it says that after um, they left the Mount of Olives, they went to Jerusalem, that's where they stayed. They stayed in this upper room, and they, they, they were united in prayer. It says constantly together, which is going to be important as we see what's coming next. So there, there they were with these people just praying to the Lord. And in verse 15, we see that during this time, there were about 120 believers who were together with them in this place. And then Peter stands up to address them. So they have all these people together in this upper room. Must have been a pretty good, pretty big, big size upper room, if you will. But uh, Jesus, um, Peter's there, and he stands up among these people that they've all been praying, and he begins to speak. Now, about this time, one should ask ourselves, is, is why Peter? Peter. Why is it that Peter was the one that, that stood up among 
the rest. Um, you know, in the Gospels, we kind of see Peter as being this kind of impulsive type of person, um, you know, kind of somebody that just kind of reacts at times. So was it just that, or was it something else? Um, I think it was actually Peter taking a, a leadership role that he was meant to have. I think um, that the people that were even with him, that we don't see them arguing, mean like, well, who are you? Why are you standing up talking? What, what gives you the authority to stand up in front of us? I don't think so at all. I think especially the disciples, they all knew exactly this was a role that, that Jesus himself had given Peter. Um, for instance, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, um, we have this verse you're probably familiar with where, where Jesus essentially changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter, um, and he says, I tell you that you are Peter, um, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not um, overcome it or will not conquer it. Now, what's interesting about that verse, when, when Peter's name was changed from Simon to Peter, Peter means little stone, like, like a pebble in your shoe almost, where he says that upon this rock, he's talking about a foundation stone, two different words for rock. Now, it, it is of note that Jesus wasn't saying that the entire church was going to be built upon Peter's back. What he's saying was, was Peter was going to be um, a foundation, he was going to be a foundation in the church, but Christ was the cornerstone of the church. And we can see this in Peter's um, letter in 1 Peter as well, speaking of the foundation stone being Christ and the foundation that, the, that was built upon that foundation stone were the apostles and the prophets. And then from there, the, the, you know, the, the stones being the church and everything else. And so there, there's no doubt that Peter had a very important position in the beginning of the church. We're going to see that as we get into the next number of chapters in the book of Acts. Um, we also see in John 21 that uh, Peter um, was told by Jesus he was given the responsibility to feed his sheep. If you remember that, that kind of famous um, thing where, where Jesus was talking to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so um, Jesus gave Peter responsibility to be, if you will, the shepherd of the church, the shepherd of the people. And it is a note that anytime you see the 12 apostles or the 11, as we see here, kind of mentioned together in one group, Peter is always the one who is named first. Um, even in all the Gospels, and Peter didn't write those. It was the other disciples that wrote those saying that Peter was always named first. Again, just information, but in saying that, Peter definitely had a prominent role, and it was kind of a natural thing for him to step out and bring some leadership to this group. But in saying that, there's a, a, a group of Christianities, especially the Roman Catholic Church, that take this picture of Peter and believe he was the first pope, and that's where they get the papacy from, um, was from him believing that, that that role of him being the head of the church was passed down from generation to generation to generation, and there's just nothing in the Bible that would indicate that, but there's no doubt um, that Jesus did give Peter a prominent role within the, the first century church for sure. And so anyways, in verse 16 and 17, he stands up, and he begins speaking about Judas. Um, he says, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. And he says, this was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. And Judas was one of us um, and, and shared with us, in, with us in ministry. And so basically what he's speaking here is the betrayal of Judas. When, when Judas Iscariot essentially sold Jesus out. Um, to the Pharisees and, and took money um, for that. And it's just an interesting prophecy. Not, I mean, it's really prophetic in nature, but it's something David said in Psalm chapter 41 in verse 9. Um, David said this, Even my best friend, the one I trust in completely, the one who um, shared my food, has turned against me. I mean, it's just interesting that, that David, um, speaking, not even really knowing he was prophesying, was prophesying about events taking place, um, generations that followed him. Now, 
what kind of prompted Peter to say these things? You know, was it, was, um, were these Old Testament prophecies something that Peter just knew? Um, were these something that, uh, that, that Jesus taught him um, during his time after, the, after his resurrection in those 40-day period where Jesus was still on earth? Or was this just something that was kind of revealed to him through um, the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's what we don't know, but what we do know is he knew these scriptures, and he knew these scriptures were specifically related to Judas. And in verse 18 and verse 19, it says, Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, um, falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all of his intestines, and the news uh, of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place, um, the Aramaic name, the Al-Kadamah, um, which is the field of blood. Now, there's something interesting about this. If you're familiar with the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, where this is really written out, People have used this particular passage in that one in Matthew to say, see, the Bible contradicts itself, therefore we can't trust it. Now, who's ever read anything in Scripture where you think it seems to be contradictory to some other part in the Bible? Anybody ever come across one of those things? They are there, but what I'll assure you is they all have an explanation, especially this one. Now, for instance, we we see what Acts 1 says, but I want to read to you what Matthew 27 says, and verses 3 through 8, and you can kind of see what I'm talking about here. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, speaking of Jesus, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse, and so he took the 30 pieces of silver that he was given by the priest, um, back to the leading priest and elders, and said, I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man, and they said, what do I care? That's, not, that's, um, that's your problem, they said. And then Judas threw the silver coins down at the temple, and then he went out and hung himself. The leading priest picked up the coins and said, it wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury since it was a payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it um, into a seminary for, uh, cemetery, not seminary, sorry, a cemetery for foreigners, and that's why the field is called the Field of Blood. So in the book of Acts, it says that Judas bought a field and that Judas fell and his body split open on the rocks. But in Matthew's account, it says the priest bought the field and Judas hung himself. So how do we rectify the situation? Is that, in fact, a contradiction in Scripture? Because we know if there's contradictions in Scripture, how do we trust it, right? And people I call scoffers, really the Bible calls scoffers, people that are trying to just find some error in Scripture so they don't have to essentially submit themselves to it. Does that make sense? If you find somebody like that, it's essentially because they just don't want to submit to the Bible. But they use this, and so how do we rectify the situation as Christians? And really, it's, it's pretty simple. The money technically belonged to Judas, and how did the, the money come about in the first place? It was through his betrayal. And so whether he took the money and paid for it or the priest took the money and bought it, the money was bought with his betrayal, essentially. So that one's really easy to figure out, right? Well, what about where he says he, he fell and his body split open? Or Matthew said he hung himself. One of two things. Obviously he hung himself because Matthew says so. And one of two things happened. Either the branch broke or after he died, we know I mean, this is gruesome, but when a body dies, what happens? When it's hung there, it sits there, it starts to decompose, and it lets loose, and it really isn't that hard to rectify that. But again, people use stuff like this, and it's important to understand, people will find stuff like this in Scripture and say, see, 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 and it really is not a problem at all. 
So anyways, in verse 20, Peter continued. He says, this was written in the book of Psalm where it says, let his home become desolate um, with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. And again, these were two Psalms that, that King David wrote, one being Psalm 69 in verse 25 where it says, let their homes become desolate and their tents be deserted. And also Psalm 109 in verse 8 that says, let his years be few, let someone else take his position. And again, we see David, I mean, wrote these things. He, he wasn't speaking of Judas. David had no idea who Judas was, he, but he was speaking prophetically, the Holy Spirit speaking through him, although David was talking about something totally different, somehow or another, Peter says, it was revealed to Peter that these specific things that David said were referring to Judas, a man that lived a thousand years after King David. So in verses 21 and 22, it says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us in the entire, um, the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until he was taken up from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is important because this here gives us the qualifications for an apostle. They, they said, what? When, when did Jesus' ministry start? His ministry started at his baptism. Right? And so it was important for whoever it was was going to have this apostolic authority, which was a big deal because they essentially had the authority of Christ himself. Had to have been somebody that saw him being baptized. Why was that important? Because those people that were there heard something very significant. What was it? A voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. They would have been witnesses of that. They would have been witnesses of his ministry all the miracles and all the things he did, and they would have been witnesses of not, also his resurrection, seeing him, and even, because they were obviously there until he was taken away from us, also they're at his ascension, knowing he went up to heaven on that cloud with that promise of a return. Now, don't you think that's a pretty important thing for, for somebody to be, have, a, have a witness of all these things? It's not secondhand information they're saying all these things? So that's why it was really, really important that the, whoever they had to fill this role could fill these qualifications. Now, of the men present, um, there were two people that were nominated. One was Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, had multiple names, but talking about the same person, and Matthias. And so, verse 24 and 25 says, they all prayed. Um, again, O Lord, you know our um, every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in the ministry. Um, and it says here, for he has deserted us and has gone to where he belongs. There is a, I guess what you call a fake gospel out. I can't remember which one it was, but there's these extra books or extra gospels that, that you kind of maybe have heard about over the course of the last decade or two. There's some movies out about them and stuff like that, but they say basically that, that, that Judas repented and that he's in heaven. Well, the disciples said otherwise. Um, very clearly, um, Judas was a man who never truly repented. Was he sorry, as we saw in Matthew 27? Yeah, he, he knew he, he um, um, sinned against an innocent man, but he never had faith that Jesus was truly the Son of God, truly the Messiah. And, and Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 26, before Jesus ever um, died. He says, for the Son of, he says, for the Son of Man must die, as the Scripture declared long ago, but how terrible it will be, will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And that doesn't sound to me like um, a person that is in heaven. Um, and obviously the disciples say otherwise as well. So anyway, so they have these two men they could choose from. And in verse 26, it says they cast lots and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. So what in the world is this casting of lots? Has anybody ever done that? Probably not, because it's not ever seen again in Scripture after this moment. 
for good reason, because the Holy Spirit comes after this, and there's no reason to do this. But um, what we do know about this is that this was a very common method in the day for hearing from God. It, it wasn't like them just like drawing straws or chucking down some dice and hoping a certain number would fall. It, had, it, it wasn't anything they were manufacturing themselves. In fact, God had used this among his people a number of times. And we don't know exactly what it is. Some people say they believe it was maybe light casting dice, that if they would fall a certain way, God would speak a certain way. Or some think that maybe it was like different colored stones, like a black stone and a white stone, where if a white stone would land on somebody, they would, that would be God's choice or whatever. Again, we don't know because this hasn't been something something that's been practiced in a couple thousand years, but what we do know is there's been a few times where God himself said to cast lots. So this was obviously a way that, that God's people before the giving of the Holy Spirit um, were, were, was used to be able to discern God's will. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 16, this was speaking of the Day of Atonement. Um, the Day of Atonement was the, like kind of a once-a-year um, celebration, Yom Kippur, they kind of call it these days. And basically what it was was where all the sins of Israel would be placed on um, the, the head of a goat and would be sent out into the wilderness, bringing the sins of the nation away from the camp, if you will. But there was actually two goats. One was called the scapegoat, which is the one that would have the sins put on it and, and be released, but the other one would become the sacrifice that would essentially atone for um, the entire nation of Israel. But in Leviticus 6, chapter 16 and verse 8, listen to what God says. God told Moses that Aaron would cast lots to see which goat would be the sacrifice and which one would be the scapegoat. So God told them to cast lots. Take the two goats, cast lots, whichever one these lots landed on, however that works, one would be the scapegoat, the other one would be set free. Um, we also see in Numbers chapter 26 and verse um, 55, God told Moses that, um, that the, the land would be divided by casting lots. Um, we see this in the book of Jonah, um, even by people that, whatever, they must have had, this must have been somehow deciphering God's will because this landed on Jonah and, and they knew that Jonah was the reason that they were in this giant storm and so Jonah volunteered to, to be thrown overboard, right? Um, now, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3 says this, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And, and so it wasn't like Peter in this moment, um, and again, we're like leaving this decision up to chance. By them casting lots, it was essentially them placing this decision absolutely and completely in God's hands. So, so it wasn't like drawing straws. It wasn't some, you know, they weren't just trying to figure it out themselves. By using this method, they were literally saying, God, this is your choice. You make it, right? Now, again, we, again, we never see this again. So the answer that, the lot, that God gave through this casting of lots was Matthias. Now, there is a controversy over Matthias. Have you ever studied this? Um, in fact, it's about 50-50 from my studies, from my commentaries, and the people I've listened to this week. There are a lot of people that believe that this was a mistake, that Matthias shouldn't have been um, the one who was chosen as the other apostle. Now, the reasons for this um, is that they believe the apostle Paul actually was God's choice. They think this was just Peter kind of being Peter, being a little bit impetuous, you know, getting the cart before the horse type of a thing. And if he would have just waited a few more days till the giving of the Holy Spirit, he clearly would have known that it was the Apostle Paul that should have been um, the one that was there. And they say this for a few reasons. Um, beyond the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, um, they say because Matthias is never again mentioned again by name in the New Testament, they think that it was clearly the wrong choice. But the thing is, is the rest of the apostles weren't 
named either outside of Peter, James, and John. And so that's not really uh, a good argument. Um, and anyways, and so there's like this, especially like in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, it talks about the, the, the new city of Jerusalem, this new heaven, new Jerusalem, that there's going to be these 12 stones with the names of the apostles on them. And, and they're convinced that Matthias won't be there. It's going, it has to be Paul because Paul was um, the apostle in the New Testament that we see, especially in Acts. Now, I will tell you that I don't think this was a mistake for a number of reasons because one, um, even after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, this decision was never rescinded. Like there was never a moment where they were like, oh, we messed that up. You know, you don't see that anywhere. Uh, we, we never see that God condemned this decision anywhere. We never see Peter or any other, any other of the other disciples regret um, bringing in Matthias. Um, in fact, in a number of places in the book of Acts, Paul is mentioned separately from the apostles. Paul and he'll meet with the apostles. And here's the big thing. Paul was specifically called to reach who? The Gentiles. His call was specifically not to the house of Israel, not to the Jewish nation. His call specifically as an apostle was to the Gentile nations. And that really is the vast majority of the book of Acts. Him going to, you know, Asia Minor, what we see as Turkey, or, 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 or Greece and, and that area, right? Or Persia, that, we, we see him traveling all over the place. But the 12 disciples, they were really given to the house of Israel. They, they were really focused on them, while Paul was really called to the Gentile nation. So, I really don't see any, any credence in this idea that they made a mistake, especially for this last reason, which really honestly is the application of this message to me, as we're going to see here in, in just a few moments. I find it really hard to believe that they made this decision an error when you consider everything they did before the lots fell on Matthias. And here's what I mean. So Jesus had just told them, the Holy Spirit's going to come, so go to Jerusalem and wait. Where'd they go? They went to Jerusalem and waited, right? They, they were absolutely obedient to exactly what Jesus said. They went exactly where he said to go immediately. While they were there, what did they do? They prayed. Not just rub it up, dug things for the grub. It says they, they prayed continually. They were constantly in prayer together. Uh, they were also united together. The apostles, these women, Jesus' mother, they were all united together. Um, Peter's whole premise for this decision was the Word of God itself. He says, the Word of God has said through David and that, that this should happen, revealed to the Holy Spirit. So he was just responding to the Word of God and says, by the Word of God, we have to replace Judas. And what they do after that? They prayed some more. They prayed some more, it says, and they, they, they picked these two candidates, that's just, they used the brain that God gave them because there's only so many that were there from the time of John to the time he was uh, ascended into heaven. And then finally, they completely relied, relied upon God for this final decision by casting lots. And so I, I just can't see a situation where they did all that and made a mistake. Does that make sense? Now, Here's what I say about application, and, and this, is why, this is a real big reason I don't think it was a mistake. Because what we see there is an incredible, incredible example of how we can know that we are walking in the center of God's will in our own lives. Now, what we saw here from Peter and the others were not people who took this decision lightly. It wasn't like they were just sitting around drinking Mai Tais and just suddenly had this epiphany that we need to add somebody to our group. No, they were serious people who genuinely wanted to be obedient to God 
and to do his will. That's exactly what we just read and went through. And, and so in our time together, I, I want to look at just a few of these things that just really, really stood out to me throughout the course of this passage about how I really think it will help us throughout the course of our own lives. So for instance, I want to ask you a few questions. Who's ever wondered or thought to themselves, God, what's your will for my life? Anybody? I mean, we can be honest. This is the time of the service where we respond together, right? <laughs> okay. Who's ever had a big decision that you're like, God, I really want your direction in this? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us. Who's ever asked God, what do you want for you next in life? Like, you're, you're, you're in the middle of life, it seems like everything's going fine, and yet, like, there's just something inside of you that says, God, there's got to be more than this. Like, what's, what's next? Anybody? I think we've, we've been there, right? And I, and I think, because I, I know the vast majority of you really, really well, I think I could speak for all of us in saying that, that we truly want to be in the center of God's will. Like, we, we want to walk in obedience to the Lord. So the question is then, is how do we do that? And I think from what we just read gives us an incredible, incredible formula for great success in our Christian lives. One, we need to walk in obedience. If you look back at verse um, 12 and 13 again, that's where I was just talking about, where, where Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem. That's exactly what they did. They went to Jerusalem, and what did they do? They went there and they waited. They went there and said, okay, Lord, this is where you told me to go. Here's where we're going to go. And they went and they just prayed. They continually sought him. You know, so many Christians live their lives wondering what God wants for them tomorrow. And I think partially that's where so many Christians go wrong. Because maybe a better question should be, God, what do you want from me today? You see the difference? Now, the idea here is choosing to be obedient to what we know God wants from us in the present before we start worrying about what he wants for us tomorrow. Because if we're not being obedient to what we already know God wants for us, why in the world would we expect God to reveal some next steps? If we're not doing what we know is right, why would, we, why would he give us more? Why would he add to that? Before we can expect the next step, we need to make sure we're doing the ones he's already given us. So a question I want to ask you tonight is, is what do you know God has called you to do now? What has he revealed to you now in your life, in this moment? What do you know without a shadow of a doubt that God's called me to be obedient in this or these things? And I would ask you, are you being obedient in those things right now? What do I mean? Well, here's just a basic example, right? For the Christians in here, if you're a Christian, there's some just basic things that you will know if you've been here for very long, because I've talked about them a million times, of things that we're all called to be obedient in just because we're Christians. Like, are we in God's Word? Are we learning? If this is our instruction manual for life, are we actually in this thing learning what it says? Do we have a prayer life? Are we talking to God on a daily basis? Are we making his church a priority in our life? Are we, are, are we serving? Are we giving back to God with our finances? Are we encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we praying for one another? Are we as Christians seeking to walk in holiness daily? Do we have a daily practice of confessing sin? Are we, are we trying to be the best witness we can be for him? Like, would you agree that those are just basics? I mean, these, these are things that the, the most baby Christian, generally speaking, will know in the first week that I need to probably do these things. They're just basic things of, of the Christian walk. Or stuff like if you're married, you know, are you being obedient in 
the areas that God's called you to in your marriage. And these are all simple things, but these things are, are, are very, very important because if we're not being obedient in the simple things, how in the world are we gonna, do, do we expect God to give us something bigger? And I just think that that's where, where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the Christian walk. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why we see some Christians doing incredible things for God and some that just never seem to progress anywhere. Why is that? Again, I'm not the judge, but from what I've seen, it's, it's because many don't even do the basic things of the Christian walk. But the ones that do, God sees as somebody that's serious, and he will give them more. Those who are faithful will be given more. We see those parables Jesus talked about in the Gospels. To you who are faithful, more will be given, right? And so this is, this is the idea. We need to walk in obedience. If we want to be in the center of God's will, if we want to know what's next, we need to be walking in obedience to what we know right now in the present. James 4.17 tells us that it is, it's, it, it is a sin to know what we ought to do and then not to do it. There's no doubt that sin affects our walk with God. It hinders our communication with Him. And, and when that's happening, it's impossible for us to be walking in, in intimate fellowship with Him and to be able to decipher what He's wanting us to do next. But like, what about those of us that um, that, that are walking in obedience. You know, I mean, we're not perfect. That's why I threw that whole confession thing in there. We're, we're going to make mistakes, but it, it's people that are, that are trying their best to do these things. What about for those that are saying, okay, I'm serving right now, and yet I'm feeling like this prompting like I need to do more? Or um, I'm feeling like God wants me to step out and lead in this particular area of life, in this particular area of the church, or, or in ministry, or I'm in the midst of my job and my career, and I'm just feeling like this prompting that God has me um, to go somewhere else, to some other place. Like, how do we know then? Like, those decisions in life beyond the basics of God's will that we see in Scripture, how do we know in those decisions in life that maybe aren't quite as clear? What do we do then? Well, we do what the disciples did. We pray. What we see in verse 14, when Peter and the others got together, what they do? They, they prayed. They prayed what? Constantly, it says. They were continually in prayer together. So one thing we need to do as Christians is pray diligently, pray continuously. The idea is caring so much about doing things God's way that we continually seek Him to make sure that our life and the decisions that we are making are on track with His will. That's so important. Um, 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 11 tells us to search for the Lord and for His strength and to continually seek Him. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says the same thing, just simpler. It says pray continuously. Literally, never stop praying as the New Living Translation puts it. So we need to pray constantly. We need to pray, pray confidently as well. Uh, what, you know, what I love about this passage is they were sitting there praying Waiting for what Jesus said to happen. I mean, there's no indication that they doubted that it was going to happen at all because they were praying constantly. You know, there's an idea that as Christians we need to be confident in the things that we're praying for. Um, As Psalm chapter 17 and verse 6 says, I'm praying to you because I know you will answer, O God. Bend down and listen as I pray. Or John, 1 John chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15 where um, the, um, the, the Apostle John says this, we are confident that God hears us when we ask for anything that pleases Him. And since we know He hears us when we make our request, we also know that He will give us what we ask for. And so when we pray, we need to pray with expectation. We need to pray in faith that God is actually going to answer us. That when we're seeking God's wisdom, He's actually going to speak. So often we get in trouble because we act before God gives the answer. 
So we need to continually seek Him until He answers us. And so we pray continually, we pray confidently, and we need to pray corporately. And this is what we see there too. It wasn't just Peter. It was Peter and the disciples and the women and his brothers and the 120 praying together continuously. And this just... That's another reason that gives me incredible confidence that Matthias was not an accident, that he was not, he was not a bad decision because that many people were praying corporately together and they all had beasts about it, obviously, in the end. But, you know, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There's power when we come together to pray. Um, as Proverbs 15 and verse 22 says, plans go wrong for a lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. And so this, this idea that if, if we have decisions, big decisions to make in our lives that we need wisdom for, God gave us one another. This is a big purpose of the church for us to, to pray for one another, to present these things, to get people praying for us that God would give us clarity and wisdom and understanding that we make the right decisions. But to do this requires what? It requires we actually spend time together to know each other's needs. It's really, really hard to know each other enough to be able to pray for specific things if the only time we see each other is a hello and a goodbye on Saturday night. I mean, we need to be involved in one another's life. This is the purpose of fellowship in the church, Do we get to know each other's needs. So we need to pray. We also need to, as verses 16 through 22 says, we need to know the Word of God. What sticks out to me about verses 16 through 22 is Peter's words about both Judas and the need to replace them. It wasn't some epiphany he had. It was from the Word of God. He said, this was spoken through the Holy Spirit about this event that we must do this. So the whole premise for him choosing Matthias was because he was responding to God's Word seen in the Old Testament. Now, when it comes to knowing God's will for our lives, let me tell you this, we cannot, go, we cannot know God's will without this. Because this is where it's contained. Even in those areas that the, the specifics like, do I take this job or not? You're not going to be able to go to the Bible and say, yep, take that job. That, that's not the way it works, right? But, Here's what I'll tell you. The Bible teaches us, the Bible directs us, the Bible makes clear for us what is right, what is wrong, what is sin, what is not. The Bible shows us exactly what God wants from us. So when asking God for direction um, in his will in a particular situation or decision, we need to seek God's word and ask ourselves, what has God already said about this particular situation? Now, and here's kind of what I mean, right? So God always works in accordance with his word that's revealed here. Um, God never contradicts his word. And so if we know, for instance, that a particular decision is going to cause us to be in sin in some other area of our life, doesn't it just make sense that that's probably not God's will? Like, like as a husband, right? If, if I know my, my, part of my job as a husband and as a father is to be home long enough to invest into my wife and into my kids to make sure that they are raised up in the admonition of the Lord, if I have an opportunity that's going to take me away from them for long, long, and long periods of time where I'm not going to be able to do that, could that be God's will? Maybe. Maybe. But you'd have to be really, 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 really clear. Now, here's probably a better example, maybe a more clear example. And I've known people in my life, and this isn't to step on toes if anybody has had this situation, but I'm just going to speak the Word of God for what it is. I've had people and friends in the past who are in a bad relationship, they're in a bad marriage. And they have convinced themselves that it's God's will for them to be happy. 
And so because it's God's will for them to be happy, and because they're not happy in this marriage, they're convinced that God has given permission to walk away from that marriage and go find somebody else that's going to fulfill them. What's the problem with that? The Bible, doesn't, the Bible says the opposite for one. He says God hates it. Divorce is not God's will, only in certain circumstances. And even then I would argue it's not His will. But where in Scripture do you find anywhere that it's God's will for us to be happy? Has anybody ever read a verse that says it's God's will for us to be happy? It's not in it. There, there is nowhere you will not find in Scripture that it's God's will for us to be happy as Christians. Now, is it God's will that we are joyful? Yeah, but there's a big old difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is conditioned on, on, on circumstances. Joy is a gift of the Spirit of God. I can guarantee you somebody's not happy being persecuted as a Christian. But who knows that sometimes it's God's will that we're persecuted as Christians. Jesus told his disciples, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Why? Because they hate me, they're going to hate you. That don't sound like happy to me. And yet this is the reality that we face. And so, but now, can we in the midst of persecution, can we in the midst of trials, because who knows that trials are oftentimes God's will. What's James chapter 1 say? Count it all what? Joy when you face various trials. Why? Because those things are perfecting us. It was God's will at times we walk through trials, but can we walk through those trials with joy? Absolutely, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, and James says so. It says, count it all joy when we face those things. We know the end result, but happiness is conditioned on circumstances. I guarantee you those that are being persecuted, those people stuck in prison right now aren't happy about it, but they may be joyful in the midst of it. See, when it comes to knowing God's will, God's will is not based on feelings. It's not based on goosebumps. I would argue it's not even always based on open and closed doors. Just because a door opens doesn't mean it's always God's will that we walk through it. And just because a door is closed doesn't mean that God's not going to open it. Does that make sense? And so we, we cannot just solely base our decisions when it comes to God's will based on feelings, based on some outside circumstances. Primarily, it's going to start with this. We seek him in prayer. We seek his word. We have to see what he says about it. Because I can tell you this, and this is how we know the difference between Satan's voice and God's voice. Satan's voice will always contradict God's word, and God will always speak in accordance with his word. That's, always, that's how we know the difference. That's why when you feel condemned in your Christian walk because you've had a bad week in your sin and you're, you, feel, you don't feel like God's loving me, I've messed up, how could he love me? Whose voice is that, God or Satan's? That's Satan's voice. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We need to know the Word of God. There's power behind that, and we can't get sucked into lies and making decisions based on feelings, because feelings is the realm where Satan works, and we have to be so careful as Christians not to fall into that trap. So we're, we're walking in obedience, we're in prayer, we're knowing the Word of God, responding to the Word of God, then what? We need to walk in absolute dependence on God and wait for Him to answer. As important as knowing the Word of God is, what happens when we have decisions where we, uh, there's not a, quite a simple answer as yes or no? Like, like, for instance, in verse 23 there, where we have this choice between um, this, this Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias, right? They have these two people, and, and there's like no distinctive difference between the two. How do we know? 
You know, I mean, do we draw straws? I mean, you know, you see Peter didn't go eeny, meeny, money, mo, catch a tiger by his toe. I mean, that's not the way he worked, right? No, it's in those moments where we have these two good options, and we're just like, I just don't know what to do, God, because if I go here, I see the benefits, and if I go here, I see the benefits. What do I do? How do I know? The answer is fully depend on God and wait for clarity. I really believe it. it's putting it in his hands and waiting for God to give you the answer of one or the other. And, and if you notice there, down in verse, uh, verse 24, it says they all prayed again. I mean, they, they'd been praying, they'd been seeking the Lord, and before they answered this, they prayed again. Um, some pretty uh, a pretty famous passage of scripture, probably most of you know, is Proverbs three verses five and six, where it says, "Trust in the Lord with all of your heart; lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. He'll make your path straight." Um, James chapter one verses five through eight tells us this: If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, for their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Now. I want to stop here just for a moment and talk about God's will. I mean, we're, we're praying, we're seeking God's wisdom, we're asking Him for answers, and He's talking about here about this person who's, whose faith is wavering, their, their loyalty divided between God and the world. And sometimes, here's what happens in a Christian's life. We're, we're praying, we're seeking God, and we don't get the answer we want. Who's been there? Like, what, God? You want me to do what? I don't like that. That can't be a will. I'm going to keep asking. And he says it again. Why do we have such trouble with that? Because we love comfort more than we want God's will. And if we want to walk in the center of God's will for our lives, can I tell you something? We have to be willing to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations that require faith. Because I think there's a verse in Hebrews 11, 6 that says it's impossible to please God without it without faith. Can I tell you something? If you want to go behind the basics of the Christian walk, if you want to do something big for God, let me tell you something, it's going to be hard. Because Satan and all of his minions are going to be fighting against you, and he's going to try everything he can to stop you from doing it. Anybody who truly wants to serve God in big ways, be ready for difficulties because they're coming. They're going to put us in situations that are difficult, that are hard, that is going to require us to trust Him fully and completely. But finally, I'll say this. When God answers, respond in obedience according to what He reveals and follow Him confidently. Like, like Matthias, I can tell you that Peter was certain he made the right choice. I'm absolutely confident of that because there's no place that ever says anything different. And I'll just also add this. If you get to this point where you're absolutely convinced that God has called you to do this in your life and you step out in obedience and then things get difficult and it just seems like, God, did I hear you wrong because nothing's going the way I thought it would? Who's been there? Like, God, you told me to do this. Why is this so hard? God, you told me to do this. Why isn't this working out? Does that mean you screwed up? Does that mean I heard God wrong? Not necessarily. In fact, I would argue that if you went through all these steps, 
You're walking in obedience. You're praying. You're seeking the counsel of others. You're absolutely dependent upon God. You're in His Word. You're studying His Word. And you're making this decision based on those things. And you step out in faith and do it. And it doesn't go the way you planned. Can I tell you something? Sit with your head held high because I guarantee you, I, I, can almost, I believe I can guarantee you that when you stand before God, He's not going to rebuke you for that. Because you did everything you knew in your power, fully dependent upon Him, and it went awry. Can I tell you something? God works all things for the good for those who love them and those who are according to called, to his, called according to His purpose. Could it be that God called you to a certain th- thing that fell apart for the purpose of some other thing that you may never even see this side of eternity? We serve a sovereign God that works in amazing, amazing, amazing ways. Trust the Lord. And at the end of the day, here's what I believe is, is the final piece of the puzzle. When we're faced with the decisions about God, what do I do? The answer is when he finally gives you peace about a decision. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 tells us to be anxious for what? Nothing. Don't be stressed out for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, which is that intense prayer, with thanksgiving, it says present your request to God. And he says, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. When you come to God doing all these things and he gives you peace about a decision, step out in obedience and do it. Trust him with the results, whether good or bad, but step out in obedience and do it. And if we do that, I can guarantee you this, we will be walking in the center of God's will. Whether it brings us difficulty, whether it brings us whatever, it doesn't matter. We can know without a shadow of a doubt if we're walking in obedience, if we're in prayer, if we're constantly um, united in fellowship with, with one another, leaning on each other's wisdom, in the Word of God, relying upon God, waiting for His peace, waiting for His direction, if you're doing that, I can guarantee you, you walk with your head held high because you're walking in the center of exactly what God wants you to do. And when we're there, God will do incredible, incredible things through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word. Thank you um, just for your instruction, God, for um, just, just basic everyday things like we talked about here tonight, Lord. We all want your will. God, we all want to walk in obedience to you. So, Father, I just pray that you would give us the grace to be able to, to follow these steps. Lord, to, to seek you constantly, Lord God, to, to, to wait on you, Lord, to seek the counsel of one another, Father. In the midst of it all, just give us peace that we can know that we're walking according to your will. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that we have your word. I am thankful that you're patient with us, even in our failures. But God, I pray that you would use all of us to do something great for your kingdom. God, let us affect the people in our lives around us. And God, maybe there's even people in here that you're going to call to much, much greater things than we're even doing here right now. And whatever that is, God, I just pray that step by step you would lead them, step by step, God, that you would reveal it to them. And when that day comes, God, I pray that you have the faith to step out and say yes. Lord God, we love you. We thank you. And all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And to be closed tonight, we're going to stand.